Welcome to this episode of the Think Wildlife podcast. Today I interview Dr. Greg Rasmussen, who is the executive director and the founder of the Painted Dog Research Trust, also known as the African Wild Dog. The painted dog is one of the most prominent predators on the African savanna. Unfortunately, the species is classified as endangered by the IUCN red list and they are suffering from a variety of issues which include hunting by local gamesmen or agriculturalists and habitat loss and fragmentation due to unprecedented development tune in to talk about all the great work the painted dog research trust is doing to conserve the species Welcome, Greg, to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on to talk about painted dogs and their conservation. What stemmed your interest in painted dogs? Um, <clears throat> well, actually, it was almost an accident that I ended up working with painted dogs. I was a, a clandestine, I was a herpetologist working with the Natural History Museum in Zimbabwe. All my life, I was actually passionate about snakes in particular, but reptiles in general. And... Um, I was on a field trip and I had a, a rather foolish encounter with, with lions and when I jumped off the car looking for reptiles and I and I stumbled into some lions. But the long story short, no one was hurt. So when the story got back, I was someone heard about me and they said, who is Greg, this Greg guy? And it was a guy called Dr. Josh Ginsberg who just set up a dog project in 1987, I think it was. And um, he was desperate for a field assistant. And he actually asked me, would I would I be interested in working with, with painted dogs, which were then, as you say, called African, called, just called wild dogs, in fact. And um, the upshot of it was, I, I said to him, well, I'm, I, I work with reptiles. And he said, he said, well, you can work with anything if you're a biologist. And I said, that's fair comment. I offered to help him for six months. Well, in that six months, um, the, I was hooked by the dogs. I mean, one of the, I suppose, here I'd never seen a painted dog, but what I did realize very early on from reading up was that they were, they'd been heavily persecuted, like a lot of carnivores, and in particular the wolves, and um, slaughtered in their thousands, and the species was going extinct in Zimbabwe and everywhere right under all our noses and I remember thinking as a young biologist then you know wow how can an animal go extinct right a large animal not like not talking little insects anyway so what I read about the painted dogs was that they were their people used to label them as savage ruthless killers all these human attributes that we push onto animals and um, suddenly started to realize that nothing was further from the truth. And there was one, almost a mile, couple of milestone moments. And the first one was quite early on in, in following the dogs using radio collars. Um, I heard an encounter with lions and painted dogs. And when I finally got, I got my Land Rover, my vehicle, into the bush where the dogs were, and there was one dog, his name was Olner, was lying on the ground, badly mauled by a lion. 
couldn't lift his head, so I walked up, had one look at him, and backed out off again. I, I went, went and tried to get veterinary help, but of course, these national parks, the areas are vast, and the the vet, I finally got hold of a vet, and he said, "What can I do?" And it was it was now six o'clock in the evening. He said, "Look, if there's any sign of life first thing in the morning, maybe we can think about it." And I came back the next morning. And Olna, the dog, was gone, but he'd been dragged away. I mean, he'd looked to me, presumably in my he died in the night, and the dogs had dragged him, dogs or a hyena had dragged him away and um, maybe eaten scavenged his carcass. The pack, the pack by this moment was, was already, um, you know, 10 kilometers away as, as dogs moved great distances, and I thought nothing of it. Then I, one dog started to re reveal something about painted dogs that was absolutely unique. After a few days, I noticed that one dog, his name was Circus, kept disappearing somewhere, and I didn't know where he was going. And um, we followed him. We managed to track him down where he was going. And to my absolute amazement, he went, we got to a point that was about eight kilometers away from where he was, where we were. And under a thicket was his brother. And he'd been going back every day to his brother because his brother wasn't dead. He was actually feeding, licking his wounds and feeding his brother every single day. And this behavior went on for three months until his brother Olner was well and could run with the pack again. And that was the first case of any mammal any species actually really looking after their sick and their weak and here was the species that was labeled sort of savage and ruthless and that was a defining moment for me i think and then also by the same vein i realized how badly persecuted they were and um like the wolf in america they were slaughtered in their thousands for on bounties in the early part early 1900s onwards until they were extinct in many many countries and um the ranchers human wildlife conflict was high if a penny dogs left the national park for like a few days the ranchers would get on their in their vehicles and on horseback and they would hunt the dogs down so it was and i don't know what it was in those days I think it got right under my skin. I suddenly realized I I had a, a, a mission in life. Maybe in those days, I had no idea whether I was going to succeed. Um, so with the rancher slaughtering the dogs and me finding out about the dogs, I very quickly became their advocate. And as for the name Wild Dog, um, what was quite in so interesting in those days was I realized that the name wild dog was actually deliberately given by humans in the early 1900s to justify the slaughter of the species. Because you can't have a nice name for an animal. It's like calling a person, you know, a child molester or something like that. He's done. So they called the wild dogs deliberately to muddy the waters between the feral dog, which is actually the official description of a wild dog um, in Australia 
Australia. And that was the beginning. And the more I realized about the dogs, their social structure was just absolutely incredible. I mean, here's a species where we as humans could learn an awful lot from. And you say, what can we learn from other species? Well, if human beings, if we were smart enough, we'd look at nature much more closely and take the best bits of it. So painted dogs have such a unique society where I've already mentioned looking after their sick and their weak, but it doesn't end there. They have a society where under most 99% of the circumstances, there is no fighting. Where hierarchy isn't, you know, isn't uh, the dominance or alpha status isn't determined by a bloody battle or a, or elections as we have where everyone starts lying and cheating. And the hierarchy is you have alphas, not dominant male and dominant female. You have an alpha male and an alpha female. And they lead the pack. And they don't feel themselves any more superior than any of the others. They just lead the pack. That's what they're good at. And how are they? And they are chosen in basically the most amazing leadership um, determination by their own siblings. So when a pack a pack has one litter of pups a year, whole pack, and you have the alpha female first the pups and the alpha male, ninety nine percent of the time is is the father of all the pups, and. Um, the when the pups are born from a very early age these pups the males are determining who is their future leader and the female pups are determining who is their future leader so by the time they're 11 or 12 months old these pups already know that when they go to leave the pack at maybe two or three years old who their leader is. And then how do they choose their leader? They don't choose it by play fighting. The leader is, we can even as human beings, as a researcher, I can look at the litter of pups, study them for a few weeks, and I can almost say that's the emer what we call the emerging alpha, whether it's a male or, or a female. And that dog is the one that's the smartest, the one that sees an... A, not something new for example they might see a snake and that pup will be the one that says to everyone get up get out of here but when they see something else that pup that maybe they can play with that pup will be the one to say look here's the tortoise we can play with that so they have a, a zero fighting over leadership it's very rare and whilst it does happen occasionally when things go wrong it, it's so where is to be a non-event. And those alphas, and here was another incident actually that said a lot about painted dogs. Very early on, I don't know, there was an alpha male badly injured by a snare, not to sit, snares as poachers, traps, um, not set deliberately for painted dogs, but they're set for bushmeat. And the alpha male had been badly snared. And basically um intervention came in we came in to remove the snare and so that we could stay close to the pack 
a collar was fitted. Another collar was fitted because he had a collar that had protected him slightly. And um, but he was so weak he couldn't run the pack. And then so the beta male, which is maybe the, the next down the chain of command, took over running the pack and and fed the alpha male and treated him almost like he was a you know young pup again. And uh, you might think if that was if that was human society. What would happen would be that they're all oh, good now. I'm the leader, and you, you know, you can keep in your place. As soon as the alpha male was better, he took the reins and was given back the reins. Said, "Here we are, brother. Thank you very much. I don't need to be alpha. You're the one meant for the job." So there was all these practices about the penny dog. You know, we could talk endlessly about their incredible behaviour. Their social behavior. And then that led me into working with the dogs. Also, why were the ranchers killing them? And that became my life's work. You are a founder of the Painted Dog Research Trust. So could you elaborate what the idea behind this was and what is your long-term vision with the organization? The, as founder of Painted Dog Research Trust, I, I started working with Painted Dogs in 1988-89. And my, my vision for conservation was to use research to understand problems and then use, use actual data, facts, to, do, to drive conservation action. And latterly... Um, and to remove ignorance and change public perception of a species. So, so using research as the tool, as the key, uh, to understand the problem. Once you understand the problem, then you can start to develop conservation action. So in the very early days, the, the my work with the ranchers was pivotal. The major threat to painted dogs was ranchers. I mean, I think something like 70% of all the painted dogs I ever studied were shot by ranchers. And um, the my first work was to work with ranchers on a regular basis, go to all their meetings, but also to understand what the problem was. So one of the first things in the ranch land was to determine, the ranchers would say, oh, you'd say, why do you kill penguins? Oh, they're killing all our cattle. And I'd say, well, maybe they are, but we need to study it. No, we can tell you the answer to that. Well, of course, that's not a bias opinion so after a number of years of gaining the trust of the ranchers i had a, asked them to declare a moratorium on shooting the dogs for three years and they said oh but but they're going to kill all our cattle and i said but after that three years i said i promise i will move them the pack and that's a kind of brokering a deal i think conservation always can't just be a one-sided thing. You know, you, the ranch, have got a problem, perceived or otherwise, real or imagined, and um, I've got to recognize that. And so we start, I started to study, really, what was the damage on livestock, for example? Staggering. Painted dogs that were labeled as ruthless cattle killers were actu actually responsible 
for 1.7% of all the ranchers' losses. And in fact, 17% of their losses was cattle swallowing baled rubbish on the plastic bags, and in one case, a cow swallowed a shoe. And at the end of that study, when I said to the ranchers, I said, these losses are nothing like you described. They said, yes, but we just said that because we don't like them. I said, now we know the problem. Anyway, slowly but surely, we worked, broke, worked with ranchers. And um, in 2000, the last year 2000, the last painted dog was ever shot in the country. And to this day, from that day to this day, none have been shot anymore. The other found foundation work of painted dog is to train build capacity in students not only in Zimbabwe but also globally but we focus heavily on trying to build the next generation of young conservation of conservation biologists globally within and within Zimbabwe in particular and groom young young Zimbabwe to become tomorrow's conservation leaders. And that's just a con continual thing to generate, to have a generation of homegrown Zimbabwean conservation biologists. So that's the the, the mission of it. Um, I also founded another organization that I became so big, I decided to se I separated myself and found that was Painted Dog Conservation. And then I went back to being doing painted dog research, which was my original, the original name of my organization. So <clears throat> that's a, li a little bit about what we do and how we do it. Um, and obviously, we're just trying to create this generation of caring about a species, and hence the name change to painted dog, which is becoming far more accepted. As I say, wild dog was given by those hell bent on it. Are feral dogs a threat to the painted dogs? And if so, how? Interestingly, feral dogs are certainly not a threat at all to painted dogs. Um, mainly because uh, mostly feral dogs, dogs can't go feral in Africa. Um, it's, it's, it's just a fact. The second they try to venture domestic dogs or feral dogs, that, domestic dogs that want to be feral, they don't last five minutes in the wildlife system. Hyenas, jackals, leopards in particular, uh, um, kill them and they don't ever get a chance to go truly feral where they have no association with human beings. So domestic dogs are not a problem. Domestic dogs were labelled as a threat, disease threat to painted dogs. Um, but ultimately, we interestingly good studies have shown now that painted dogs never actually go anywhere near domestic dogs they, they avoid they avoid human habitation most of the time and domestic dogs actually we radio collar studies on domestic dogs show that they rarely go very far from the, the human inhabited areas so feral dogs and whilst disease Things like rabies and distemper have reared their ugly head from time to time. Ultimately, they <clears throat> that's not the biggest killer of the species across the across the continent. 
ultimately it is it is and has been and probably will be for the nearest future is humans and also humans habitat loss and the impact humans are having on the habitat because obviously all wildlife needs habitat and painted dogs in particular so what are some of the other threats faced by painted dogs they're interesting they're the threats i'm most dealing with with painted dogs are two anthropogenic threats and the first one is roadkill and the second one is den disturbance by tourists tour operators film crews wanting to visit the painted dogs because the the irony is that the species when i first took over everyone hated the species now it's gone from my vision was to have a turn of species by education from perceived pest to best loved animal in 20 years. And that was my a little early little vision that kept me going in the early days. But humans going to dens for tourism purposes and films, you see these, the damage they're causing is absolutely untoward. The first thing is by people visiting the dens, um, other predators like lions and hyenas follow the human tracks, the open trails that humans make then they end up a den and they'll kill the pups the second is that the dogs change their behavior they'll often move the den and when they move the den because they're they're concerned about the, the, the threat they don't know the humans are going to do no damage they move the den and the pups uh, if they move it prematurely the pups get die on the move the other thing is that if they don't move the stress they're under increased stress and it's not uncommon, and in fact, in a recent documentary on the painted dog, um, one den from a proven known breeding female that had been producing big litters all her life, um, suddenly two pups emerged from the den. And, um, well, the fact is that the, it was a BBC film. No one ever alluded to the fact that the stress of the film crews being at the den will cause lactational deficiencies. In fact, lactational deficiency is the biggest killer of, of, of lactation in human human women, and um, stress is the big, big, biggest killer of lactation lactation in humans. And um, only two pups emerged, and normally there would have been ten or twelve. So. And there are other, <clears throat> there are multiple stresses. Dogs, we, our data has shown that dogs change their behavior. No surprises. So instead of the pups being active 24 hours a day and getting fed at intervals every hour or two, and they need to eat huge amounts of food, these pups, because at 12 weeks old, these pups go nomadic. It's the most amazing feat to see. Little pups, you know, often doing five or 10 kilometers a day. Um, in their nomadic phase of their life. So humans and den disturbance are not, um, it's one big one. And often in the disturbed dens, the pups don't grow properly because they're not getting fed five or six or seven or eight, nine times a day. They're getting fed when there are no humans wanting to take photos. And then the other one is cars. And obviously we have major high-speed roads running through all our wildlife areas. And 
that's really very much what we'd call a silent killer. You know, we all drive in the wildlife areas and you see the odd bird here, you see the odd reptile here, you see the odd snake there, we see a painted dog. And you say, well, it's just one. Well, of course, it's never just one. It's just that's what we see. And, for example, I've got three main roads that run circles three sides of my study area in the dispersal corridor area. And for seven years now, the impact of that road keeps making the packs go boom and bust. So that what happens is on roads, is a, a pack, we know that the minimum pack size is six. So we're, and to illustrate this with an example, um, we had a pack of eight. A truck killed three. Now it's down to five. The alpha female needed to have had pups. She had her pups, but now only four of them can go hunting, and they need five to hunt efficiently. So what happened is she was starving and was going to starve all because of that one truck hit. And she was going to starve and probably maybe die of eclampsia, and so were all her pups. That was a given. The pack couldn't bring enough food back. We heard her begging and screaming for food, but they couldn't supply. And um, we got permission from the Department of National Parks to intervene. But had we not intervened, the result of that one truck hit would have been fatal to the whole pack, and the pack would have just disintegrated. Because the painted dogs are not just like a pair of dogs. They need all the help they can get um, with just one pair breeding. They need a lot of food every day, and they can't do that with one, 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 one adult male and one adult female. And then what happens is the pack gets wiped out and leaves a va what we call a vac a vac a vac there's a vacant, vacant territory, and we have something we call the vacuum effect, where another pack sees this territory called an ecology and ecological trap. So they suddenly see, well, look, there's all this wonderful habitat but they're not aware that the road is such a threat and then they get taken out so then we get populations that don't survive so and we're actually modeling at the moment the impact of roads because sadly with all the efforts being put into painted dogs the numbers are still declining and it's my firm belief that the two of the major threats which are um, den disturbance and roadkill could w well be contributing to this. So, can you talk about PTRT's Kanzungula Road Project? Yes, yeah, so our Kanzungula Road Project at the moment is probably the biggest challenge of my life. You know, I remember in the early days that if I could solve the problem with the ranks of killing painted dogs, I would basically that would be the pinnacle of my career and I'd have solved the biggest conservation problem. And really sadly, getting motorists to change their behavior is is make, making ranchers change their behavior look like a walk in the park. Um, the problem is that people, and we, we all know that people speed. And people always, drivers sadly have a very inflated opinion of how well they drive. They don't drive well. And of course, in what we we keep 
praxis. We keep putting roads, keep coming through sensitive wildlife areas. And everyone says, well, the traffic will behave. The traffic never does. And then, of course, when most wildlife are active between sunset and sunrise in terms of, certainly in Africa because of the temperatures, that's when drivers are driving their worst, mainly because they can't see very well, they drive too fast. And ultimately, their react, driving reaction times are down. And then, of course, people are always so concerned about, I must get to the Botswana border by 8 o'clock. And so they, instead of leaving at 5 o'clock so they can get their 8 o'clock safety for wildlife, you know, they, they get out of bed at 7 o'clock to get, get to the border at 8 o'clock. <laughs> so the road project at the moment, where obviously it's public awareness, but also the other, the other thing we realize is that we've had to have, have partners. And our partners, our mission is to support the police with road with, with roadblock equipment, to support them with speed trapping equipment, because in all our countries, we can't expect governments to find funding for a lot of these act, act, items that we need. There is money in third world countries, as I'm sure it is in India, is often very short for certainly for wildlife issues. And um, so we're supporting, the idea is to support the roadblocks, to support with equipment to monitor speed between roadblocks, which then means that we can more effectively to monitor wildlife areas. At the moment, we're actually trying to develop very, very affordable camera technology. Because one of the problems is, is it's all well and good in the first world where you've got, you know, high expensive speed cameras that are 10, 20, 30, to up to 100,000 euros, dollars, whatever currency you're talking about. In third world countries, we need effective and affordable solutions. We also have a, another problem, certainly in Africa, and I'm sure you do in India, um, but maybe in my current study area where we've got 50 to 80,000 elephants in the region, anything we try to do to put up on a, a post, whether it's a speed sign, whether it's um, would-be cameras, elephants destroy anything that's man-made. It, it seems that they just have to have something to play with. So we can't even put speed signs up. So we're going to have to work with government to paint on the road, all the road warning signs. So the idea is to develop, help the police do their job properly in national parks and using camera trapping help to monitor all the, all the illegal activities that are going on. So it's a multi-dimensional activity. Um, and when I think roads are a challenge that's going to plague the human population for years. And unless there's an enforcement tool that is accurate and effective, we're not going to win the battle. And so we're working on the enforcement tools that we'll be able to deliver for the benefit of conservation. Can you just talk about how PZRD is involved in community outreach? So naturally, community is very important. The wider community, the local, very local community. So at a very local level, we um, 
have a community, community education outreach, and that's mainly targeting the youth, um, sensitizing them to nature. We have a Saturday program, for example, with iNaturalist, where you know the kids all run around with iPads and learn about all the species because our whole concept. And then the other side of community is to find projects that we have. I have a mission where I say I'm looking for projects that help the environment and help people at the same time. They're not always easy to find. So, for example, like everywhere in the world, there are invasive species. So periodically we raise funding for invasive species removal, but we don't just give, raise funding to remove those species. We turn them into very good compost. Because some of your some of your worst uh, invasive species, I mean, for example, you have one in India, or well, it's global invasive, Lantana camara, taking over your forest. And um, in fact, it was Indian biologists that actually worked out the best way of dealing with it. And we now then plants like lantana, we we shred it and turn it into very high quality compost with deto and detoxify. So in other words, it's not just getting rid of something, it's turning it to good use. And then that compost, we're actually using it to grow tree nurseries, grow trees, um, because our soils here are completely degraded. And so in the community area, we're working on afforestation programs to understand how that we can reforest landscapes and provide some benefit to communities that currently from the, the communal landscapes, they've been so badly overgrazed. And, and of course, with climate change, it's kicking everybody. And so originally, this area was never meant to be for cropping agriculture. And we keep trying to push areas to be croppable and they're not and so we're trying to work on trying to see if we can not only recreate habitat but create wildlife islands of endemism where i'm sitting now on our study of the our base just outside victoria falls it's in the communal land uh eight years ago it was it was basically barren piece of land with three species of birds, like half a dozen species of reptile, no frogs, no bats, the area being no bird and no butterflies. And over eight years, we've managed to demonstrate that you can restore even a very badly degraded piece of land. And we've now got over a hundred species of birds, several species of bats that took five five years to return because there was no habitat for them. So. It, it's it's a conservation is a very slow process, and we just have to be tenacious and determined to, to, to make sure it's a long term goal. What are some other prominent conservation projects PTRT is involved in? At the moment, it's mostly it's monitoring the painted dog across across a six and a half thousand square kilometer wildlife corridor. Um, we're in, involved with our road project, which is all-encompassing. And one of the things in conservation, the more projects you, we, I think it's a good life lesson here. The more, pro the more you try to take off, sometimes the less effective you become. So at the moment, apart from community programs, 
and education, apart as well as um, supporting young graduate, young Zimbabwean graduates, and working on this road problem, which is the biggest, huge challenge. It's all in, all encompassing in the time it takes. Um, those are our major, major foci. So what have been some of the greatest challenges you have faced throughout your conservation career? Well, in the early days, I thought it was the ranchers. And when when that took me 13 years before the last painted dog was there, they put their guns down and a, and, and a, and a lasting... <coughs> and I thought <coughs> I'd solved the major problem. But now... Honestly, sadly, the biggest challenge I face, and if other conservation biologists realize this, is traffic and people driving recklessly in our wildlife areas. I mean, to give you an idea, we, we have we studied, I've been studying a section of road that's basically 60 kilometers long over seven years. And the number of vertebrate animals, so that's obviously mammals, reptiles, birds, um, kills every year, ranges between four and 8,000 vertebrates. Now, wildlife populations can't sustain that kind of carnage. And what we're seeing the same pattern on every, this is just a tiny section of road, it gives you some idea of the magnitude, but no one sees it. Half the kill you roadkill you never see. You drive early morning, and all the predators are picking up anything that's accidentally killed, what that, that can be eaten. And so, the, my biggest challenge is is mot a motorist, really and truthfully. And I, I had no idea that this was going to be such a big challenge, but it's one that if I don't solve, painted dogs will not survive in in this region. And my final question for you today is that how can individuals contribute to the painted dog conservation? Well, people often say, how can I help? Well, let me tell you, there are it's money obviously helps because we can't, we can't fund a project on fresh air. But you know, people can spread the word. People can spread conservation messaging globally. People can follow what we're doing even that that helps but also here's here's a fact people don't realize everyone has has skills has skill sets that can help conservation i mean quite interestingly at the moment um all the, the programming languages that would need we, we need, need needing programmers to help us with the the computerized side of this traffic monitoring program and uh, those are programmers a lot of them are from india just a fact and so you know everyone have, people have skills so there are a lot of people out there that don't realize that their skills are needed but when they do if, if they can offer them that's worth a lot and also just to share this podcast because the more people know about a species the more we like something the more we look after it so thank you so much for your time. It was a, a pleasure speaking to you today. Yes, and a pleasure speaking to you. And I'd like to wish all your listeners 
in India and abroad, all the very best conservation regards. Thank you. Have a nice day. Okay, thank you, Ani. I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. Don't forget to subscribe and share to the Think Wildlife podcast.